0: This week, we discuss the importance of cannabis delivery services, how to be a good Samson, and the pitfalls of the legal industry in the state of California, coming up next on Critical Grass. Get it, man, and get with the countdown. Shake this square world and blast off for Kicksville. Critical
1: Grass. It's stimulating, mind-expanding, safer to use than alcohol. It's the in-thing the hula hoop of the jet generation, and as much a part of growing up as smoking corn silk behind the back fence. Critical grass. He's looked at both the pros and cons of blowing pot. He's not convinced that grass is all that harmful, but there is room for a lot of doubt. Why don't we wait and see? There's a lot of testing to be done before we'll know all the facts. Critical grass. My name is Marie Momarque. I'm originally from Nashville, Tennessee, currently operating out of San Francisco, California, and LA, and I am a vertically integrated cannabis business owner.
0: That little educational introduction was brought to you by Captain Flawless with a track titled Numbers, as in MD Numbers, Inc., as in the name of the company that this week's guest founded and is in charge of, along with her brother, Alan Hackett. So we have Marie Montmarquet, co-founder of MD Numbers Inc., a family of vertically integrated cannabis brands that include MD Farms, Marie's Deliverables, and Legacy Coterie. These companies provide a range of goods and services to the California supply chain, retail customers, and equity community. Based in the Bay Area and reaching throughout the state, their mission is rather simple, to educate and to grow. Envisioning a future that is abundantly equitable, Marie and Alan pay forward their success through MD Numbers and its subsidiaries by providing goods, services, and an education platform for legacy operators and burgeoning equity entrepreneurs to develop successful, sustainable legal cannabis companies, which will give back to their communities. And that is the whole idea behind the cannabis legalization movement in California. To do away with the unregulated underground market and usher in a regulated, safe, legal market where everyone has a fair shot. At least that's what they've told us. The reality on the ground is a little different, however. More on that later. So how did a nice southern girl from Tennessee get into cannabis and make her way all the way out to California into the booming cannabis industry?
1: I would say like... in in Tennessee, Nashville, Tennessee is where I am born and raised. In high school, you know, we smoked pot everywhere in America, and I definitely smoked some pot in high school. I wasn't big on it. I was more of an athlete and, like, really into scholarly things, and I had this stigma that, you know, potheads were bad and not that smart. So I kind of stayed away from it. But when I went to college at University of Tennessee in Knoxville, um, really – started loving weed on the regular basis and smoking weed on a regular basis and all my friends smoked weed on the regular basis and it just started to become like a more of a cultural like normalcy for me of accepting cannabis smoking cannabis being around cannabis of course then developing into selling cannabis so that's where in college for sure was where I got my hands wet my feet wet (laughs) every everything I tried and tested in college my parents are both from, like, New York, New Jersey, Chicago. I guess they they met in Chicago. I'm the only one born in the South on both sides of my family for the most part. And when I was little, I used to get to come visit my godmom in California, and I thought I was this little California kid, and I always wanted to move to California. And then when I got involved with cannabis, I realized, oh, I have to move to California or I'm going to end up, you know, under the jail, like, something sad's going to happen or bad, right? So I did Everything that I could to just figure out, how can I get to California? I just got a job doing commission sales, actually, with uh, in 20, I guess this was 2009, you know, the economy had pretty much tanked and everything was underwater and there was no jobs and the housing crisis. So I just immediately tried to get into any sort of um, sales opportunities where I could just generate income. And I got hooked up with this company that ended up moving me out to California. They had all cities all over America. And if you sold enough direct TV and you build a team big enough that was selling enough direct TV, they would move you. So I got moved to California uh, working with that company. And so my goal was just always said, if I had a job, I'd move and finally was able to secure something in Nashville, Tennessee, that would move me out here. And then once I got out here, it was just Off to the races to figure out how I could get involved with cannabis.
0: So Marie did what many other cannabis enthusiasts and prospective entrepreneurs did throughout the U.S., find a state where cannabis is legal and set up shop there. Considering where Tennessee was with respect to cannabis laws, this comes as no surprise either. Cannabis for both medical and recreational use is still illegal in Tennessee. Possession and cultivation are still punishable by heavy fines and jail time. And to make matters worse, the state has been blocking decriminalization efforts in recent years. There is an exception that allows the use of high CBD, low THC cannabis oil for seizure patients, but this covers only a tiny fraction of patients in Tennessee that could really benefit from medical cannabis, which could provide much-needed relief to people suffering from... Oh, I don't know, chronic pain, nausea, glaucoma, diabetes, cancer, HIV, etc. Tennesseans who want cannabis treatment, for the most part, unfortunately, have to travel to a cannabis friendly state, the best nearby option being Illinois. So Marie chose the promised land of California, which went medical in 1996, and adult use slash recreational in 2018. So where did the idea for setting up a vertically integrated cannabis company come from?
1: So it's... Pretty much a, like a like a triangle at this point, where my my brother and I, uh, my business partner Alan Hackett, he moved out here in 2015 when we started the first company, which was the delivery company. And Marie's Deliverables was started in 2015. We kicked that off. Next, we expanded into Los Angeles with another delivery service. Then in 2016 we discovered if we're not cultivating any cannabis, we're gonna get left behind. And we're not gonna be able to compete with the price point. We're not gonna be able to compete in Los Angeles. There's no way to bring this expensive Silicon Valley consumer down to LA. They're just, that is not necessarily something, you're not gonna make money if you think everyone in LA is gonna buy weed like they buy weed in the Bay. So we realized we had to get a, we really needed to control cultivation, control production at some point and vertically integrate So we started our farm in 2016 in Salinas, California, and it's 50,000 square feet of mixed light. That's what my background is. So that's our farm. And never since that began, we just beginning. We just wanted to horizontally integrate things and vertically integrate things when we could that made sense with the business and was actually profitable. So we have a nursery. We have our cultivation. We have our processing, which are all succinct they're integrated as one together down in salinas and then we have a distribution permit down there so we can transfer product anywhere we need to in the state after that we have focused on retail a little bit more so bringing that flour from the farm into our delivery service packaging it up taking it to the retail so we can cut out the middleman essentially and get that full retail price point and Throughout all of these processes, I guess with cannabis and the regulations that took place, of course, it was just more fiery hoops, more things to jump over and go around. So that created more businesses just out of necessity. So Legacy Coterie is a distribution and consulting company that we have for moving bulk product around, doing bulk distribution and building brands for anyone that has a uh, thought process of how they want to build a brand we can definitely consult with them and make sure that everything about the operations the reporting and the compliance actually works and that they're going to make money um so that business just kind of was created out of a necessity with all these other things going on and we created almost like an umbrella structure and that's where the md cannabis inc was our original company but we wanted to get cannabis out of there so we changed it to md numbers inc so md numbers inc is just it's above all of our other companies structurally and then we have the farm the delivery and the distribution company underneath all those
0: so essentially you have a one-stop shop for curious cannabis consumers who want to know where their weed comes from Uh, Marie and her company have full control over how their cannabis is grown, how it's processed, and where it gets distributed. As she states, cut out the middleman, and you have yourself a vertically integrated business, which does come with its responsibilities, of course, and if done properly, can generate even more business activity and or opportunity. I was curious about the delivery side of the business, however – especially for a place like California, which has cannabis dispensaries throughout the state. Now, why did Marie decide to incorporate the delivery service into the company?
1: Honestly, that wasn't what I wanted to do, right? Like I, I wanted to have a rep group and I wanted to go around to all the dispensaries with like a binder of products of the best edibles, the best flowers, the best bank pens, all this cool stuff, warranty it, educate, train. I wanted to have a rep group because my previous business, I worked with a... Uh, this company called Mega Western, who's the biggest rep group for plumbing in like the West Coast, and I was like, oh, this translates to cannabis. Like, we should have a rep group that can train and do all these things. That's what I wanted to do. And I realized, like, man, this is going to be pretty difficult to put together a binder of all these companies and like, it's just a lot of work. And while I was doing that, I was also going around to every single dispensary in the Bay Area trying to sell them one thing. This Organics herbal supplement Capsules. So my friend, some of my friends I met that this business thought it was really cool. I was going around selling CBD, sativa, sleep pills, all these things, but nobody wanted them because everybody would say, like, yeah, this is cool, but we need flour. Or, yeah, this is cool, but we need edibles. We need other stuff. Like, you're not helping me. So I fast forward throughout that whole process. I'm like, in Redwood City, getting deliveries from you know compliant. Delivery services I'm finding on Weed Maps or Yelp, and I was hating it. It was just disappointing. Like some of the worst weed, inconsistent. It was either inconsistent in all the wrong ways, or consistently bad in all the wrong ways. So it, I was out of about ten or twelve delivery services that I ordered from. Only two would get like my repeated business. And then I started to do more research, and I was looking at the map on Weed Maps back then in 2015. It was wide open, like. There wasn't a million little dots everywhere. It wasn't so competitive. And so I decided, well, I should probably hold off on the prep group and start with something a little easier. And I had a friend of mine that was a grower and had a multitude of strains at all times that I could go and choose from. And it gave me the confidence to be like, okay, I have a menu I can build. And I got a guy I can constantly get consistently high grade flour from. I'm gonna create my menu, I'm gonna go on weed maps, I'm gonna launch the delivery business. So that's where it all started. It was just getting a lot of deliveries in that area and just being like, mm, I get better weed from my weed man. Like I'm why would I call these people? I should give everybody my weed man, you know? Like so that was my idea originally and, and it was crazy how how fast it kind of took off. Because me originally I never thought oh, I'm going to start this business and it's just become I'm going to become a million dollar company, you know. And like I had very, you know, humble thoughts like, all right, I'm just going to start this business. If I can make six figures and replace all my other jobs and be an entrepreneur and be in cannabis, that's all I want to do. Right. So it was definitely very humble beginnings. I never thought that in 2015 we would start, you know, the first business, launch another business in six months, launch the farm a year later. And since then, we we part like. Prop 64 killed a lot of businesses, right? Like it was an extinction of cannabis in California as we know it. Small businesses, everything. And my delivery was on the, like the threshold of that happening because we were in Redwood City. We were in a city that did not offer any local permits. They said, you got to go to another city and get a permit in another city and you can come back and deliver here, but you cannot deliver here without that other permit. So in order to avoid extinction of our of our baby, we made a deal in San Francisco with a larger group there that had obtained a permit and a building. And that was all they had, basically. Like, we got the permit, Marie. We got the building. We don't know how to do delivery. We don't really understand any of this stuff, but we want to build a really big company and we want you to come in and build it with us and you'll be a part owner. So we kind of, consolidated a little bit all the deliveries into one hub in San Francisco and created a new company.
0: So the delivery side came a bit out of necessity, a bit out of the desire to provide a superior quality product. Now, despite there being approximately 1,800 licensed and another 2,800 unlicensed dispensaries in California, there are large swaths of the state where there are zero dispensaries for people to stock up on their medicines. So delivery services are a lifesaver for many, particularly those who are immobile and can't leave the house. But it's not just about getting cannabis to those who are unable to get it on their own. Even through deliveries, you develop a special relationship with your clientele, as many Dave Chappelle fans can attest. I want to talk to Samson. Climb to the moon like that bitch Alice Cramer. Because it's hard being black and gifted. Yeah, that's all we can play without getting lawyers involved, but you guys get the idea. At any rate, here's Marie on that special relationship with your weed person.
1: I would say, um, hilarious reference and I can't stop thinking about the music video. Call Samson. I, uh, so like, I came from that like super Samsony almost, like, it's it's kind of weird to think about, but just like the complete private market, like the free enterprise system, right? Like, hey, I'm your weed, I'm your weed girl. This is what I have, you know, to call me. I'll either meet you somewhere or I'll bring it to you. And like, that's definitely like the total vibe that I came from, from college, right? Then you come out here and you're like, oh, I'm, a, I'm professional now. Like, I'm professional at delivering weed. What's different? And it was the craziest thing is like Marie's deliverables. I always would say and joke like we have that like meeting of both where it's like they felt really, really comfortable with you where you were basically like their local weed man. But you were the legal local weed man. So they called you and they talked to you and like, you you're, you know, their family, you know, their dog's name, you're hanging out like you understand your clients really well because we were just so hands on. But at the same time, you have the whole legal compliant aspect where this is a business. This isn't just, you know, your homie calling your phone and you're pulling up and you actually have, you know, logistics to think about and menus to update and e-commerce that. Customer faces they they see. So for us it was funny. I always like thought about like we were basically both. You know we wanted you to feel like we totally wanted you to feel that Samson vibe. Like this is your local guy. You love him. You're loyal to him. One thing that I've definitely discovered or I agree with is cannabis. In a way, like your weed man is a part of your life. He's a part of your routine. Like. Whatever, you know, whatever days, whatever smoking routine you have, like if you'd like to call him in the morning, like call him on the evening, it doesn't matter, but he's literally a part of you and you are like, this is your routine. So if you can get into someone's routine where it's just like, call yeah, call Marie's deliverables. Like Marie knows, like call Marie, she knows, she has the good stuff. Like they'll, they'll hook you up. Don't worry about it. And having that like Samson almost feeling, but at the same time, they understand like they can call for really specific medical advice or have a consultation about cbd ratios or um even just call and and like talk to me and i'll walk them through how to actually titrate something and dose something and understand the effects of what they're doing so i actually think the best experience that anyone could ever have is like the half and half right you wanna feel like it's your local guy, and like they know you and they're your friends and they're not gonna screw you and it's a super uh, mutually beneficial experience, right? But at the same time, you wanna feel like you're getting really reputable products, really compliant products, really educated. Um, you know, you wanna to talk to people that are very educated, that are giving you the right information and you wanna feel good about your purchase, right? You wanna come back and you wanna be loyal. So understanding like all these things, from like my college days, I definitely wanted like my compliant delivery to still have a lot of those same like Samson feelings because it really, really is a part of your routine. Like that's part of your routine. Colin Samson is a part of your routine. It's what you do is what you tell your friends to do. And you want to have that same feeling. And it's hard, harder, I would say, to give customers that feeling, the larger and the more corporatized your business is.
0: Marie definitely has a point here. The bigger the company, the bigger the focus on money, the less attention your clientele will get and sooner or later that will be reflected in your sales, as well as the attitude of your customer base. So it's of utmost importance to not only provide your clientele with a solid, reputable product, but to also engage with them and to build relations with them. After all, we are a social species and we can get more done through cooperation than through coercion. Now, speaking of maintaining a happy customer base, how do cannabis companies keep their finger on the pulse of what the clientele wants, especially in California, which goes through new cannabis varieties, what seems to be on a weekly basis?
1: This probably gets answered in like a number of ways, right? One problem, one like huge consequence of Prop 64, and I say this like with a grain of salt a little bit, but we gave the consumer too much information by that. I mean, on a jar of weed, you see the cultivation date, you see the packaging date, you've got all this information, and a consumer doesn't really understand when something needs to be packaged, how long it, it can sit in that jar. The state of California actually put a one-year expiration date on the jar, so they're all like, oh my God, this expires in a year. But like, where I'm going with this is the average consumer went like from... Prop 215, we were like super what are the terpenes? What's the profile? What's this? What's yeah, we want to know the THC percentage, but like that's not as important. Prop sixty-four came. The number one thing that buyers buy for right now is THC percentage. It's sad. Like you could have like literally something that you would not want to smoke, but the THC was 30%, and that's gonna fly off the shelf the first. So breeders from a couple aspects are like, oh, okay. We know we have a hitter, and like, we know this guy's coming in. He is a 28 to 35 percent tester. They're gonna try and cross that and cross that and cross that and cross that. What I see most, like, what I see most of right now, as far as strains are, and not to be like cliche, was when Cookies was created, and prior to the strain of like these different cookie crosses, Platinum Girl Scout Cookies, Thin Mint Cookies. They started crossing everything with gelato. So like the Sherberg, I mentioned the Sherbert, like the Sherberts, Sunset Sherberts, gelatos, pretty much became like the underlining fino of everything really popular in the last couple of years. Um, and even phased out like GDP. G- Granddaddy purple is impossible to find. You cannot find GDP. How crazy is that? Like, They took GDP, they made it into Purple Punch, they made it into a couple other things and they just phased gelato and phased gelato and heavy. And people want that gassy, OG a little bit, but with that color, that purple, that nice purple color that a lot of the the Sunset sherbet crosses, gelato crosses have created. And then from there, that's where we're going right now. It's like thin mints, now we have all the mints, People just crossing all sorts of different mints collaborations, lemon mints. Um, I mean, you, you name it, there's a mint. And those are really expensive, like, sought-after, like, cookie strains right now. And, of course, like, some really, really high-end OGs will always maintain. Like, you always have some really good OG. But breeders, from the, for the most part, are definitely still crossing all of these gelato peanuts. And you're gonna win, like you're still gonna win with these gelato finos. Like it's it's unbelievable. I, even for me, like I love gelato, but like it's crazy to see like the industry has not shifted away from the fino. We might've changed the name a hundred times. I, that's all we did.
0: For the uninitiated and those who have never been to California or have never looked at a dispensary menu, you might come across terms like cookies, gelato, cake, and pie and other yummy sounding names. Of course, they don't have any of those ingredients in the cannabis itself. Rather, the names are a reference to the phenotype of a given variety. A plant phenotype is nothing more than the observable characteristics or traits of the plant. In other words, its physical form and structure, its developmental processes or how it grows, its biochemical and physiological properties such as various colors, scents, and odors, as well as the plant's behavior. When growers or breeders go quote-unquote pheno hunting, they breed plants to obtain these specific external features before locking down the genetics to get a consistent phenotype with each generation of seeds. The more you know. Uh, Marie also shares an interesting little tidbit about a lot of these phenos that have consumers in California going crazy.
1: If you are an Instagram person, you have to follow this account called CloutKing 2.0. And it's a brand, but it's also a meme generator of making jokes, heavy jokes on all sorts of, I mean, just utterly hilarious. And they're so right. Like they don't make that account to be anything but laughing at what's really happening. And one of the, like some of the memes that they make on there is just so funny because it's like, Oh, what you got another renamed gelato, Fino? Oh, another renamed gelato. Oh, another. It's like, this is all that we're buying and we're calling it. You know, peanut butter cup, peanut butter souffle, Mendo breath, you name it. But it's all the same stuff at the underlying. Yeah, it got a little bit of a cross here, something different, or a little bit of across there, something different. But if it's not, if people are not buying for THC, they're just buying these same style of crosses that are extremely sought after. Like it's, to this day, these certain gelato crosses, you can't keep them on the shelf even though it's been years now and they'll phase out names. Like they phase out the sunset Sherbert and they phase out this Sherbert and then they'll phase in the cakes. We had a whole run of every cake that you could ever imagine that they could ever name. I mean, ice cream cake, wedding cake, birthday cake. And it's been three years now of the cakes, which are also fino, Fino's of the Sherbert's, which the Fino's are the Sherbert's of the gelatos. And it's just the evolution of the cake. We go, we grow actually what's behind me is all wedding cake. Like, this strain for us is amazing because it's – you could smell it, and when you'll smell, it's just sweet gas. It's not too sweet or it's, like, super sweet. It's not too gassy where you can't smell the sweet, but it's just, like, a perfect half gas, half sweet, like, just a nice, really nice bag of peel. Um, But, yeah, it's crazy to see, but we're all about the desserts, Clearly. And California is pushing the desserts thing. Like the flans are probably next on the list and some other creative things. Like it's, it's crazy. Like, like Napoleon ice cream. I mean, I don't even understand, but literally like we have a thorough obsession with desserts. And most of these desserts right now are all coming from either cake crosses or gelato crosses. Really gelato cake together. Gelato cake with a little bit of OG bro. You got three, four years, you're good. It won't change, like, won't change.
0: Get yourself some nice cultivar with a popular phenotype, slap on a dessert name that ever so slightly reflects the aroma or taste of said cultivar, and bam, you got yourself a winning strain in California. Ultimately, it comes down to the phenos with these new strains. Genetically, cannabis hasn't changed all that drastically since the 1980s and 1990s when crossing strains exploded, but there are countless phenotypes out there these days, and it's easy to get confused, especially with all the non-scientific names being thrown around. At any rate, the good people at MD Numbers Inc. seem to have this part of their business figured out for now. However, I did wonder what things are like for entrepreneurs in California now, two years following the passing of the Adult Use Marijuana Act, a.k.a. Proposition 64.
1: Barriers to entry are still extremely high. Um, Wouldn't necessarily be higher than the beginning of January 2018, but extremely high. And permitting is still at a very elementary level in most localities and even more mind-blowing, cannabis is still banned in more cities than it's allowed in California. Like Weed Maps has a huge uh, campaign against like educating, just educating the masses on like the fact that we have cities, whole cities that have banned commercial cannabis. And we are basically passing laws to have access to medical cannabis. At the same time, we are banning Recreational and medical cannabis from or adult use and medical cannabis from all these places. Right. So it's ultimate catch 22. And a lot of the cities, like I made the example with Redwood City, said, no, 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 you go somewhere else and you get a local permit somewhere else. And then you can come deliver into our area. So we're in almost it's almost towards the second half of we're in the second half of 2020. Redwood City is still not offering individualized permits. A lot of these cities like they're doing phased approaches and as we know, you know, government is set up for very small incremental changes over time and this industry is exactly that. So not a ton of new access for real estate for permits or cities like cities are about to come online. There's a lot of cities in California that are like oh, especially now with COVID and the pandemic like We need to figure out how we can make some tax revenue. Let's finally go ahead and pass this adult use regulations. Still requires you to have a building that you're paying rent on for a very long time before you even know if you will be successful at achieving this permit, which is a very risky endeavor for anyone, no matter cannabis or not. You know, if you tell if you tell me, hey, Marie, like I want to open up, you know, this coffee shop. But I don't know if we're going to get the coffee shop permit because right now it's zoned to be an auto auto business. Then I'm like, man, this is really expensive. This I'm not sure if this is going to play out. What um, guarantees do we have? And the answer is none. So it's the same exact scenario. And in a lot of cities, I mean, L.A. is one that's super, super messy, um, but you have a lot of people paying for retail especially in LA because it's only equity like they're only offering equity permits first to those that have been impacted by the war on drugs and these people that have been impacted by the war on drugs are going into debt to hold on to real estate for permits that they do not know if they will ever get like insanity at, at like every every phase the second part of that I would say is there's a lot of Like when we passed a lot of these laws, we passed them with no compassion. We passed them with tons of regulation, tons of taxation and no compassion for medical, no compassion for the same programs that we had previously for veterans, for terminally ill, for all of the people that we literally passed the legalization of this plant for. We were like, who are you guys? We're going to ball you up and throw you in the trash now. And you're going to come in here and you're going to pay 30 percent more than you've ever paid in your life. So. Some of the compassion bills are finally going through regulation, which makes me very, very happy that we'll finally be able to have, you know, compassion-priced cannabis. To your point, when January 1, 2018, came, more people called their local weed man than they ever have. I mean, essentially, like they passed this law with all in every asinine way to create a system of, a, like, a thriving black market. Essentially, like we didn't create the white. We didn't create a system for the white market to thrive. That's what we had before. We destroyed that system and we created an, a, a mechanism for the black market to thrive now. Right. We're overtaxed. We're overregulated. And. At the end of the day, it's like the stuff that you got from your weed man is probably not worse than what you're buying from your dispensary. Like we know that as Californians, like we have no question if we're getting good weed from our weed man. You know, we trust the weed man in California. We're not too concerned as if he's giving us moldy weed or heavy metals and all of these different things. So, like, the black market is still thriving, like, completely thriving. The white market, the regulated market, we are so overtaxed. We still can't bank. Like, well, we just got a bank account for our farm, and our account's $2,500 a month, down. It's like, just to have a bank account. Plus fees for picking up the cash. I mean, it's like a catch-22.
0: From the looks of it, the state of California wants to make it as difficult as possible for cannabis companies to set up shop and operate within the law so as not to encourage people to turn to the black market. I think I see where this is going. The legacy, or underground market, will most likely continue to thrive for a long time as its infrastructure has been there for decades. And there are no signs that growers who make up the overwhelming majority of producers in the state are going to go through all the legal hurdles just to pay higher taxes and lose their customer base. Another issue with the current barriers to entry is that mom and pop operations will struggle mightily just to keep their heads above water, whereas large producers, i.e. corporations, will be able to dominate the market with relative ease, potentially leading to the formation of monopolies.
1: Monopolies exist as as we know it in America. You know, we have Comcast, we have Disney, we have these huge media conglomerates, we have all these monopolies and a lot of those businesses weren't monopolized because of access to real estate. Cannabis is only about access to real estate. Cannabis will only be monopolized by those who have access to have two million square feet canopies, two million lights, two, you know, these very, very large, large scales, because there's only so much land that's permittable that's ag agriculture, flat land, without trees, without timber preservation. You know, we have a very limited, the The lines are drawn. That's what we can agree, right? But this is where weed will be grown. And the people who can grow the most weed in these areas will be our overall winners. You know, they're going to be the conglomerate. They're going to control the price. They're going to set the tone for the market. If they can be profitable, cool. If they can't be profitable, then who knows what's going to happen. And we'll see more consolidation. Things spin on their head, but from just an overall like I would love to be like, hey, things are gonna get better, but in reality, as more localities permit, as the state, like even in California, the state might reduce some of our taxes, but I guarantee you, the minute that they deschedule cannabis and the feds take cannabis, we will have all new federal taxes. Like we will, granted. If you can make money with 280E right now, then you will make money, like you will really be able to make money when you have tax write-offs. So that's like a huge advantage to 280E coming, but it doesn't change the aspect of, this industry will be monopolized based upon who has access to the land. And very few people have access to the land, very few people have access to purchase these really large plots and do these really large build-outs for all this canopy. So we basically turn you know, cannabis into alcohol, whether we like it or not. We've got our AB Bev, we'll have us maybe 25% of the market owned by these small companies.
0: And if left unchecked, that number could get much bigger over time. Just think how many alcohol companies there are compared to what there used to be 40 to 50 years ago. Same with auto manufacturers and media companies. So make sure to choose wisely when choosing your cannabis brand. So, any advice for potential ganjapreneurs wanting to get established in California?
1: Advice-wise, read the regs, educate yourself as much as you possibly can, period. And then, like, you gotta have that dog in you. If you don't have that entrepreneurial spirit, like, if you weren't gonna be a business owner at all, you're definitely not gonna be a business owner in Kansas Like, you don't even have tax write-offs, bro. Like, there's no way you're gonna be successful. If you have that dog in you and you have that entrepreneur spirit in you and you will do whatever it takes to make something happen, you'll be successful. Like you really will.
0: So know your laws, know the regulations, know what you can and cannot do and then get ready to battle because you got a lot of competition in Cali. All right, if we want to get in touch with Marie, where can we go to find her?
1: mdnumbersinc.com. md.farms.ca is our farm Instagram and we have a new website that we're launching right now which is MD numbers Inc and you can check it out there we're doing a couple more edits and a couple more revamps on there but it's got some really nice pictures of the farm a lot of information on advocacy and some of the work that I do with the equity programs in San Francisco and just a little bit on the distro company a little bit on the delivery company a little bit on the farm give you like a good understanding and then my email is on the website
0: and now the saddest part of the episode, time to say goodbye to our guest. Marie Monmarquet of MD Numbers, thank you so much for the insightful chat and for sharing your experience about the cannabis industry in California, particularly from a delivery perspective, which doesn't get enough attention in my opinion. But nonetheless, keep up the stellar work and good luck with the, uh, the company. Uh, hope to place an order with you uh, next time I'm in Cali. Oh,
1: yeah. Thank you so much for having me, Bogdan. This was an amazing convo. Can't wait to host you in California.
0: You just heard episode 50 of the Critical Grass podcast. We are now officially at Half-Life or maybe not. Who knows? But 50 is a very nice number. Once again, a big thank you to Marie Montmarquet of MD Numbers Inc. for the great chat. I'm in the mood now to drop off some weed somewhere. Feel free to share this episode with your friends and enemies alike via the social internets. If you would like to contribute to this podcast, you can do so financially by becoming a Patreon member at patreon.com slash or by donating via the PayPal link on the Critical Grass website. After a very eventful six months with some fantastic guests, I've gotten a little tired, so we'll be taking a break for a short while, but we will be back in October with even more amazing conversations that you definitely won't want to miss, so keep your eyes and ears peeled. My name, as usual, is Bogdan. Stay lit and legit as shit, my amigos. See you all in the fall. Au revoir.